Hey everyone, today's Real Vision Daily Briefing is sponsored by CraneShares. Learn about their KRBN ETF at craneshares.com forward slash KRBN forward slash Real Vision. Now to the top analysis of today's markets. What's driving global liquidity? Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. With me today is Darius Dale, founder of 42 Macro. Hi, Darius. Hey, Maggie. It's great to be back with you and your audience. How you doing? Yeah, I'm doing well, thanks. I'm doing well. Uh, so it looks like U.S. markets in a bit of a holding pattern ahead of Friday's payroll number. U.S. stocks ended the day fractionally lower. We had Treasury yields down a touch, but not, not a whole lot going on, um, which is understandable. We know the economic data is going to be important, of course, but you're also closely tracking global liquidity and you sent over some really interesting charts. So I thought we'd kick off today with you just giving us your view on what's happening with liquidity and why we need to pay attention to it. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Maggie. So uh, we put together a few slides. Um, we'll be brief and be quick, you know, open it up for some questions afterwards. But I do think it's really important to focus on this because right now we have two dynamics that are occurring in markets that are direct headwinds to global liquidity and could make the correction that we've experienced across risk assets and obviously in, in defensive assets as well, primarily defensive assets, it could actually make that start to snowball on itself akin to what we saw in September of last year around the UK guild crisis, et cetera. So I think we have to be very concerned as investors that we're starting to get to some critical thresholds and some of these key leading indicators to liquidity. So uh, without further delay, uh, Brian, if you can just pull up chart one, we'll fly through these charts uh, really quickly. Um, you know, chart one you know, where we show on the left our, our global liquidity proxy. And for those who are not familiar with our, our work on global liquidity, uh, what the 42 macro global liquidity proxy is, is the amalgamated sum of the global central bank balance sheet, global broad money supply, and global FX reserves uh, minus gold. Uh, we show that on a year over year rate of change basis in the, on, on, in the black line in both of these charts. The blue line in, in the left chart is the global uh, stock market capitalization on a year over year rate of change basis. Bitcoin in the, on the right chart, as you can see, it's actually a key driver of risk assets, and increasingly so uh, in recent years. And this is obviously something that uh, Raul uh, focuses on. We had, uh, him and I did a big uh, deep dive on global liquidity back in June, if uh, folks want to check that out. Um, you know, asset markets, if you go to slide two, uh, Brian, you know, the reason we track global liquidity is because, you know, it, it explains a lot from an asset market perspective in terms of the levels of, of asset markets. So uh, they're always co-integrated with global liquidity. In this chart, we just show the blue line is our global liquidity proxy on a nominal basis. Red line is S&P, uh, our orange line is Bitcoin, uh, purple line is Ethereum, black line is the Treasury Total Return Index, and the green line is the corporate bond uh, total return index. And as you can see, you know they're always co-integrated with global liquidity, but those correlations do rise and fall. They're not always tightly correlated, but generally speaking, if you have a big move higher in global liquidity, you're going to see rising asset prices, a big move lower in global liquidity, you're going to see lower asset prices. And, 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 and the reason we're sort of having this conversation now, if you throw up slide three, uh, Brian, is because we've seen a real aggressive move higher in the U.S. dollar. I want to say it's been up every week since the end of July. Uh, and that reason that's important as it relates to global liquidity is because the dollar and FX volatility are key drivers of global liquidity on a leading to coincident uh, basis. And so in the red line, the black line in these charts, again, are the year over year uh, rate of change of our global liquidity proxy. The green, the dark green line in the left chart shows the U.S. dollar real effective exchange rate on a year over year rate of change basis, almost perfectly inversely correlated to global liquidity. And then the last slide, the, the, the light green line in the right chart uh, shows the uh, currency volatility index. Uh, the Deutsche Bank currency vol 
that CVEX is what we call it on a year every rate of change basis. As you can see, it has a similar relationship uh, to global liquidity as well. So when the dollar is rising as it has been for the past few months, and it's starting to see a, a breakout in currency volatility, not quite there yet, but we're actually moving in the wrong direction again. Now that, in our opinion, is something that could actually make what has been a negative global liquidity impulse uh, significantly worse, much like what we saw in 2022. Mm -hmm. um, the dollar, uh, so if you go to slide four, Brian, just real quick on this chart, this dollar is really strong on a real effective exchange rate basis. For those who are not familiar, real effective exchange rate is a broad trade weighted currency basket uh, that's uh, it's sort of adjusted for inflation across the various localities. And so it's sort of like a true underlying measure of strength of the US dollar on a broad trade weighted basis. And what we see is that at the current level, we're about as strong as we were uh, as at the highs of 2001, which is a prior peak uh, in this index prior to last year. This data only goes back to 1994. It's unlikely to be as strong as it was in the 80s, uh, but it's still very strong when you consider the, you know, this, this particular time series. Uh, if you go to slide five, the, another thing that's been weighing on global liquidity and obviously weighing on asset markets in recent weeks uh, is this sort of, you know, bird, uh, this bounce higher in interest rate volatility. So same charts we're showing here, but the red line in the left chart shows the global real 10-year yield. Uh, we track that on a PPP purchasing power parity weighted basis on a year-over-year -year basis point rate of change. We show the move index on a year-over-year -year basis point rate of change as well. And what we find is that interest rate ball, although not as tight, is a key driver of global liquidity and, and more so on a leading basis. What we find is that when you see these big spikes uh, in yields, you typically see a big, um, um, big declines in global liquidity on a, on a, lag, on a, on a lag basis. And what we find is that the move index or bond market volatility uh, is inversely correlated to the global liquidity on a coincident basis. So, you know, if a lot of what we've seen over the summertime in terms of the spike that we've seen in interest rates, I mean, you just look at the last month, the real 10-year tips yield is up about 50 basis points. You know, that's that's something that's really causing, you know, real damage to the sort of liquidity functioning, the liquidity features in asset markets uh, in recent weeks. And just uh, if you look at slide six, Brian, the move index is actually structurally elevated as well. So um, what we show that blue dotted line just shows where the current value of the move index is. And, you know, you're in the 80th, 90th percentile uh, for this time series going all the way back to 1988. And it's been elevated for a while, but we're now moving in the wrong direction again in terms of, you know, kind of the liquidity feature uh, in asset markets. And the reason we bring this up, we'll just wrap it up in terms of the last couple of slides, is the global liquidity impulse has been negative for each of the past six months. And if you go back to uh, the discussion we had uh, with, with Raul back in June, you know, we sort of took the other side of the view, uh, Raul's view, which was, um, you know, that we thought uh, global liquidity was inflecting, had inflected lower and would likely continue to be negative on an impulse basis, um, you know, going to go forward basis. And what we're seeing is that positive surge that we saw in global liquidity in the first, you know, the latter part of a Q4 mm -hmm. in the first part of this year has really inflected. And we tracked our global liquidity impulse on a, on a three month, uh, on a trailing three month momentum basis. And what we find is that we're losing about, you know, 1.8 to $2 trillion of global liquidity over the last three months. And that's something that could deepen in the coming months if we continue to see dollar strength and bond market volatility, which in our view would be further exacerbated by this sort of U.S. exceptionalism dynamic that we wrote about in our lead off morning note this morning. And then, um, you know, so that's, that's sort of it. You know, we can wrap it up there in terms of yeah. questions. I I think that's really important. I, I'm going to pause and and say two things here. And Brian, I'm going to ask you to pull up um, our platform if we can. So it, it's great for us to start with that with Darius because I think that he's giving you a peek inside the framework that a lot of analysts build. Right? They're not 
throwing darts or they're not just guessing where, where they think things are going to go, like sort of shooting from the hip, right? There's a lot of analysis that goes into it. If you feel like you don't understand everything Darius just said, if you're earlier on the journey um, or coming into this from YouTube or you're listening on YouTube, you don't understand it. On our platform, the comment section under the video lives all the time. So you can ask questions about the charts he talked about or what it means again or for further clarification. Um, Brian's showing it right now. That's open all the time. It doesn't close. Tag me, tag Brian. We look at those all the time. So the next time we do an AMA or the next time Ralph and Darius come on and dig into this, we look at all those comments, we look at all those questions, and we feed them into the shows we do, the questions Ralph takes, the academy things we do um, in our education center. So don't be put off if some of this seems like it's a little, it's something you haven't heard. I know some of you are diving into it and you know about it already. But if you don't, I don't want you to say like, oh, this isn't for me. Um, we're here to break it down. That's what we do. And nobody does a better job of that than Darius by well, sort of showing sure. you go what goes behind it and showing you some of the charts because it's a lot of work. So I just wanted to say that right off the bat. Um, so, so Darius, with that, um, th this global liquidity piece that you've been talking about, Raoul's been talking about, is something that it's you know it doesn't like really sort of pop up when you go flick on the financial news channel or something, but it's very important. It seems to be playing a really big role. It sounds like you're you're concerned that all of the the sort of whipping around that we've seen um, in interest rate, in treasury yields, in currencies is sucking. Am I am I understanding this right? Sucking liquidity out of the system, and that's bad for stock markets. That's bad for things like Bitcoin. It's sort of creating a risk off environment. Is that is that what that's telling you? Yeah, that that's the key takeaway, and the re and why it's doing that is because the world needs dollars to satisfy their existing dollar uh, stock of dollar obligations. So if the price of dollars is going up and the supply of dollars is being reduced at the margins because of currency volatility, because of interest rate uh, real interest rate rises and interest rate volatility, then it's making it harder for the global capital system that we currently built and kind of stuck with for a while uh, to continue chugging along at the same pace. And so obviously the implications are. You're going to have headwinds in asset markets. You're going to have headwinds in the economy, and that's very different than the sort of transitory Goldilocks vibe that we've been living in, really, since you know going back to Q4. Um, you know, we sort of pivoted to that back in January. Hey, everyone, we're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. While we're talking about this this currency situation in the dollar, and that chart on the dollar is crazy. But bef before we take a look at that again, um, Andreas uh, dropped his latest Steno signals on our platform today, and he also highlighted currency risk. Let's have a listen to that, and then we'll talk on the other side. So there's a risk of what I call the dollar intervention doom loop occurring out of uh, Asia. So when the dollar is strong versus local Asian currencies. Local authorities can sell dollar assets and buy local FX to try and mitigate the pressure from the strong dollar. But the issue is if they start selling their dollar treasury holdings, they also increase the yield on US treasuries 
along the way, meaning that the yield spread between the dollar and the local currency uh, will basically widen even further. And then we basically have a doom loop. Then they need to intervene further, sell more dollar assets, yield spreads widen, and there you go. So that doom loop is a clear risk. And that's just one of five things influencing uh, the treasury yields curve. That's what Andreas is really focused on. But, you know, as we're discussing, it has a lot of implications. To watch that entire presentation, by the way, head over to our website. If you're only following us on YouTube, make the leap, jump on one of the trials we have. You can find it all at realvision.com. so Dar- Darius, uh, th- th- we hear doom doom loop. <laughs> this is a pretty ominous um, thought, but talk to us a little bit about that dollar situation because th- this is, I think this is really important and it se- seems to connect exactly to what you're talking about with global liquidity. Yeah, absolutely. So if you can just go chart three back up while I explain this, and, and I think doom loop is a fantastic uh, phrase, by the way, because it perfectly describes what is actually happening on the ground. And so we, when, when folks, you know, particularly in the crypto space, think about liquidity, they think about it from the perspective of, okay, central banks this, central banks that, are they pumping, are they removing liquidity mm-hmm. in terms of um, making the Bitcoin price uh, uh, go up or down. There's a private sector agents that create liquidity as well in the sense of commercial banks, uh, non-bank market participants as well, particularly in net internet, international investment surplus economies like Europe and Japan. You know, those It's very hard to create incremental credit and extend and allocate credit to to borrowers, existing borrowers, newer borrowers, when you have currency volatility, when you have a dollar or sorry, interest rate volatility as we are currently experiencing now. And so that sort of private sector liquidity creation vehicle uh, in terms of the global liquidity matrix, um, which is why we include uh, broad money supply in that that matrix is actually being curtailed uh, at the margins. And the reason that's important as it relates to the doom loop is because we have this sort of, the world is structurally short dollars. We know that there's about 13, 13 to $15 trillion in dollar-denominated debt. Um, if you look at dollar-denominated um, loans, or it's about two-thirds are denominated in dollars. Our bonds, international bonds, are about two-thirds denominated in dollars, and about half of all that is created by entities that have no organic access to dollars. You know, it's like Japanese banks or European hedge funds or you know Brazilian you know uh, pension funds, something like that. So the world is sort of stuck in this you know doom loop scenario as long as the dollar continues to rise. And when you think about what's causing the dollar to rise, and uh, Brian, you can throw up slide nine here uh, on the TV, on the screen. What's causing the dollar rise is very fundamental. You know, the US, and so what we're showing here is our global liquidity monitor, where we're tracking various metrics across growth, inflation, and policy across uh, the various localities to understand, you know, what are the key deltas, the levels and trends on all these indicators to understand what's likely to occur from the perspective of policy, from the perspective of of those um, of those uh, you know sort of commercial banking features, and what we find is that the U.S. is outperforming substantially when you look at places like Europe, places like China. It's not quite outperforming Japan, but you know one of the things that's been causing that dollar persistent dollar strength is this U.S. exceptionalism by not just in terms of the economy, but also in terms of terminal rate pricing, floor rate pricing, et cetera. So I don't really see how we get out of this without some sort of intervention. From the perspective of central banks who can who have the ability to mm-hmm. kind of like, that was my next question, Darius. You read my mind. Could we see intervention? It's been a long time. People forget, but there was a period where central banks were. I mean, we see it happening in Japan. We see to a certain extent in China. They're they're in the markets and they're but but it, there was a time, especially pre-Euro, when intervention, currency intervention was commonplace uh, by central banks. Could we see intervention? 
could the U.S. intervene to weaken the dollar to prevent this sort of doom loop from spiraling out of control? I think if we saw currency or, or coordinated, coordinated yeah, co- so that was the Plaza Accord back in I want to say '86 uh, when we saw coordinated intervention in the currency market. The dollar was much stronger on a DXY basis uh, back then. I want to say you know it was in the high 160s, whereas now the dollar is you know kind of just above 100. So I think we're a long ways away. And in, in, in both in terms of price levels for the dollar, but also in terms of the volatility in the interest rate market and in the currency market to see coordinated intervention. The kind of intervention I think is more likely to happen in this scenario is economic intervention on the other side of what happens when you pull this liquidity rug from out underneath these major economies. You might start to actually see you know, something that looks like a, a real true sovereign debt crisis and in, in, in more core a sovereign debt markets. Obviously, the gilt is a fairly core market, but it's still not really big or meaningful relative to the existing stock of a global sovereign debt. If this we start to see something creep into, I don't know, the JGB market or the Boone market or the UK uh, US Treasury market, because all these markets are highly correlated, that's where you might start to see central banks, you know, find the next, you know, alphabet soup of acronyms to kind of address <laughs> it, much like what we saw with the BTFP uh, uh, back in March. Exactly. Don't expect them to call it quantitative easing, though, because everybody, we know how everybody feels about that. But it'll, exactly. it, you know, the, the, the same thing in a different dress, maybe. Exactly. But um, so a lot of lot of great questions coming in here. Um, you, you you folks are amazing. We're going to try to get through a lot of them. So, um, gosh, they're so good. Okay, let's start with the do- the DXY. Do you think that Brian and Mario are killing me this week, and Nick, they're just naming people after celebrities because you're coming in a serial number still. So um, this question goes to Seth Rogen. Do you think DXY could go back and possibly break above 113 from back to October of last year? Yeah, yeah, definitely will. I mean, it's unlikely to if we continue to have this sort of expeditious rise because I do see right, I see a scenario where in effect, the Fed is going to have to step in and intervene in asset markets if we continue to rise like we do for the next few months, like we have over the previous few months, over the next few months. Um, if we, but we could have a much more grinding move higher in the dollar and a grinding move higher in real interest rates, uh, like we, you know, what we've, you know, not necessarily like what we've seen, but if it slows down but continues, that's how you get the dollar back to those levels because um, ultimately there will be no reason for the uh, policymakers to intervene. So I, I, I think it's a reasonable expectation. Um, I don't. It just depends on the path it takes to get there. Tom Hanks is asking, can the Fed, <laughs> they have to have some fun. Uh, I love it. Can, I know. I'm all for it. <laughs> can the Fed, I, I mean, I, I love that some of these, but you can, you can let us know how you feel about your celebrity, uh, your celebrity handle while we suffer through this. Can the Fed reverse the liquidity drain, which is forcing the dollar up? Yeah, it can. Is it going to? No. I mean, you look at the most recent, you know, kind of compendium inflation statistics. We are now in a official tug of war between immaculate disinflation as a market narrative and sticky inflation as a market narrative. Mm. That, in our opinion, um, was very much evident in the August CPI data and the August PPI data. We saw headline uh, CPI and PPI pop on a three-month annualized basis to levels we haven't seen in in a couple of quarters. Uh, We also saw some stasis or lack of further deceleration in some of the underlying measures of inflation like trim mean um, uh, CPI, uh, trim mean PCE deflator, and also the supercore PCE deflator, which obviously Jay Powell has cited as a few times as kind of this kind of main underlying inflation gauge that the Fed is, you know, intricately focused on. And mm-hmm. we're not really starting, we're not no longer seeing movement in those indicators uh, anymore and on a three-month annualized rate of change basis. And that's a problem because they're all stuck at levels that are, you know, 
100, 150 basis points north of the Fed's uh, 2% price stability target. And if we start to trend sideways, this, this Fed is just going to be on the sidelines for an extended period of time unless we have some carnage in financial markets that can get them. I was just going to say, unless something breaks, this is what yeah. we st- what this is how we started the conversation with the rapid or, or the tightening that that was more aggressive. And then we stopped talking about it because we had all of this other growth and all this other all these other developments. But we seem like we're back to that again. So and there are a couple of questions related to that. One of them, what do you make of the recent decline in, in oil prices? Yeah, no, that's the best possible thing you could be seeing on your screens as an investor right now. Uh, obviously, there's a lot of folks who are long energy and probably about the highs in energy that are uh, learning a lesson from Mrs. Market right now. Mm. Uh, but the reality is that's awesome. I mean, energy's up about 10% over the last three months. You know, prior to this decline, it was up like 20 to 30. You know, so that, that's something that's obviously being uh, contributing to, um, to, uh, to, to, to the inflationary impulse that we're still seeing. But again, that inflation impulse is not just energy. It's not just the sort of more volatile components of CPI. We are actually starting to see stasis again in these underlying measures of inflation that have nothing to do with energy and food. And so we need to see energy prices go down if you want to remain bullish as, a, as an investor. You need to see food prices go down. You need to see Europe closing the gap as it relates to U.S. exceptionalism and, and some of the economic malaise that Europe's been in, because that's been one of those things that's caused this you know, unabated rise in, in the U.S. dollar. We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Yeah, and that's exactly what Oliver is asking about. Do you see a recession in the EU? And if so, will that push the U.S. dollar even higher relative to the euro? Well, every major economy in Europe, you know, where you go Eurozone, Germany, France, Spain, Italy, has negative year-over-year industrial production growth, or sorry, negative year-over-year real retail sales growth, and every economy, with the exception of Spain, has negative year-over-year industrial production growth. I don't see how you can argue that they're not in some form of a mild recession with those statistics uh, coming at you. Now, this is not a recession that's sort of like cascading and building upon itself like recessions typically do. Right now, they're just kind of experiencing a mild contraction in in economic output. If we start to see the Eurozone unemployment rate rise uh, in a material degree, uh, it has not really risen yet. But once we start to see that, that's when you can make the case that this this European recession um, ordeal could be pretty, pretty, uh, pretty nasty. And and eventually that'll be positive because it'll take inflation down in Europe and get the ECB, you know, kind of uh, backing off from a rate perspective. That'll take the terminal rate structure uh, in European in European rates down to a level that's a lot more palatable for market participants. But again, this is a multi-step process. We are nowhere near that that that, that part of the process yet. Inflation in the eurozone is still, you know, a, a key issue um, yeah. with respect to their core inflation measures. And I'll remind everyone. Uh, Andreas pointed out when he and I did a program during the content campaign. Um, you know, some of the central bankers, if you if you listen to what they're saying across Europe uh, at and here as well, kind of warning last time around they. They buffered or they cushioned that recession by fiscal stimulus. Now it's going to be hard to do that without it being super inflationary and just creating its own negative feedback loop. So that that ability to cushion any kind of recession or to to delay it or postpone it by coming in and writing checks to people is going to be tough to do if central banks are going to try to get inflation under control. Uh, so um, let's see, Darius, this is Jennifer Lawrence 
sorry. Uh, <laughs> with, the, with your analysis of Move Index, where do you see the long-dated bond price? Somebody was really excited that he was Seth Rogen. I'm not sure how the Jennifer Lawrence person is going to feel. But, I'm excited. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> where do you see the long-dated bond prices, TLT, going? I mean, this... <laughs> Is there, what's the, I mean, so we've already gotten to my price targets. So going back to uh, the early part of the spring, or not the early part, kind of the middle part of spring, this is kind of mid-May, we said, hey, look, if we get more BOJ tightening, you should expect to see 475 to 5% on the 10-year. If we don't get more BOJ tightening, you should expect to see 450 to 475. We are already in the top, you know, upper end of that kind of target range without having seen more BOJ tightening. Right. And so if we, you know, we continue to see if Japan is a, a real wild card here as it relates to this global bond market development that we've seen in recent months, because Japan is the only economy in the world right now, major economy in the world, will have above trend GDP growth, uh, composite PMI reading that's above 50 and trending and, and, and above trend, and also with inflation headline and core above trend. You know, they have a, a nominal GDP problem. Now, Ueda, the big Japan governor, continues to push back on you know, expectations for more easing. They want to see for more evidence of a wage price spiral. Uh, there is no evidence of a wage price spiral. But in our opinion, if the Japanese economy continues to run hot, you're going to start to see some evidence of a wage price spiral in our view, and that'll ultimately lead to more tightening. So to me, if Japan tightens incrementally further, you're talking about 5 to 525 on the 10-year Treasury yield and a much higher level in the nominal uh, tip shield. Could we see 3% on the tip shield? I, I think... If the U.S. economy remains resilient and the Japanese economy remains resilient, I think you got to be very prepared to see another 50 to 75 basis point back up uh, in the 10-year tip shield before this, this movie's all said and done. But that, that's an extreme scenario, probably more like 25. Yeah. Uh, Jamie Foxx asking, what do you make of the 210 spread tightening? Uh, yeah, so it should be bear steepening. Uh, this has been part of the call we made on bonds, which is expect to bear steepener. The entire world is offsides as it relates to the resiliency of the U.S. economy, which is what you and I have been talking about, Maggie, for over, well over a year now. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah so, absolutely. Yeah. They've been offsides about a lot, actually. They've, totally. The, the bond <laughs> trade's been difficult, as we know, and a lot of people have, have had me a couple who've come on and talked to us in the dollar, too. A lot of people expect the dollar weekend. So uh, all around, it's been, well, they're connected, aren't they? But uh, <clears throat> someone asking, what do you think of gold around 1800 around 1800. I mean, gold bearish for us. I mean, we don't, we don't, part of our systematic um, portfolio construction process does not allow us to be long what we call bearish FAMS instruments. So that have bearish price momentum that also have volatility in a regime that is confirming that bearish price momentum. Gold's been bearish for a while now, so we wouldn't touch it with a 10-foot pole until that, at least that volatility signal starts to tone down, but it's just, it's not toning down. It's actually getting worse. Um, Jonas just posting, not one of the Jonas brothers, but he, his name is actually showing up. You Lucky you, Jonas. Uh, where do we allocate to hedge against a possible route in the government bonds? That's a great question. A lot of people, because of the volatility we're seeing everywhere, a lot of people are just wondering what to do, like where to hide. Basically, we, we started this show yesterday asking, is cash still king? I don't know. What do you think? Where's a, where's a, a possibility? Can't remember anything working last year, Jonas adding. Yeah, well, the short rates. I mean, that's it. You know, you you don't have to. We can go on a long conversation about this, and this is something I think I've done as much, if not more, research, empirical research uh, than anyone on this particular topic. Which is, government bonds are absolutely toast from a long term perspective. Term premiums still way too low. Inflation expectations are still way too low relative to our model in terms of you know the nominal growth dynamics you could potentially see, the fiscal policy dynamics you're likely to see in this fourth turning. 
the, it, you know, we have several models and a lot of empirical studies that tell you that bond yield should be somewhere close to six to seven percent on the tenure. And so, if you're going to maintain a, you know, kind of structured strategic asset allocation that is very long bonds because you believe it is a countercyclical ballast in your portfolio, that may work in and around recessions, but it also may not work in and around recessions. And we know it's not going to work when you're not in recession in a world where inflation pressure and the fiscal policy pressure is taking the bond yield towards six to seven percent. So in our opinion, you don't need to be long duration. You're getting paid five and a fifty, maybe even higher if you look at commercial paper rates to be long, no risk in the cash market. Mm. And so as long as you can do that and, and, and have maintain some sort of comfortability with get, just getting divorcing your old 60-40 portfolio, you're going to do way better in this market cycle and in the future market cycles than people who are just getting dragged into this new regime, kicking and screaming. We've done a tremendous amount of work on this. Yeah, great, great point. And we've been talking about that a lot. You've been talking about about it with it. The, the 60-40 rethink is is for real. A lot of people have different opinions about what it should look like. Um, but the idea that that is not working and will not work going forward um, is something that we've been hearing a lot of. Um, I think we got to most of it. I just want to read a comment because I th- it's so good. Um, Tom Cruise saying, did you hear what happened with Metro Bank in the UK today? It's urgently trying to raise 600 million pounds, shares down 27%, down 62% in the last month, bank crisis 2.0. And someone else, Brad Pitt, asking, do you see more trouble in regional banking? Um, Do you feel like the blow up's going to happen in banking, Darius, or or is it going to be somewhere else or too hard to tell right now? That's an excellent question. Um, blow up is probably too strong of a word because we have put in backstops that allow right. these banks to sort of get the liquidity they need to wind down effective or wind effectively. It's not a really strong word there, but to wind down without causing too much of a panic. Um, you know, where the issues are, in my opinion, are in the non-bank financial sector, the unregulated financial sector. Folks who don't have access to the federal home loan banking system, folks who don't have access to the BTFP. Uh, you know, what if we see a broad-based reduction uh, and credit intermediation across the non-bank financial sector. Now, we are way too soon to make that kind of call in terms of the, what we could see uh, from a from a you know broader financial contagion perspective. But if we actually start to see growth really slow materially, and the credit, you know, the animal spirits of these actors in terms of their willingness to win, to lend to themselves and to lend to you know uh, private sector borrowers, that's where you can have a real serious bank up uh, blow up in our opinion. So uh, this is this is. You know, we know there's going to some some negative stuff out there on the horizon. Mm. You know, a part of our call this year was saying we are not in agreement with the hyper consensus that the negative stuff on the horizon is going to come soon. We were always of the camp that it's not going to come at least until Q, uh, November of this year, if not, um, you know, April of next year. We've always had that as a kind of the modal outcome from our recession signaling standpoint. And so, if that forecast, which we authored in November of last year, is comes to fruition. You could see a much bigger, you know, issues in financial markets emanating from the non-bank financial sector because, to me, that's where the big uh, worries are after you know some of the backstops we put in place in March. It's a great, great point, and that brings us right back to where we started, which is why looking at global liquidity is so important. And when the system starts to break down, and we saw that happen before, it's a, you don't want to be in that situation. So hopefully, people are paying attention and. Um, and you know, trying to cook up some solutions to this, but yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot to worry about. Darius, always fantastic to catch up with you. Thank you so much. Appreciate you, Maggie. Thanks so much.
So we have, uh, before we before we go, remember we are teaming up with Ledger to bring you our latest festival of learning. It's the next digital assets wave. It's going to be, take place next week, October 12th and 13th. It is completely free, free. All you need to do is go to realvision.com forward slash festival 23 to sign up and get the details. We've got to figure out what's happening in the future. Um, thanks, Darius. Thanks, everyone, for the fantastic questions. We will see you same time tomorrow. Take care and good luck out there, everyone. Thanks for joining us, everyone. Today's Real Vision Daily Briefing is sponsored by Crane Shares. Learn about their KRBN ETF at craneshares.com forward slash KRBN forward slash Real Vision.